Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. What is reality? Well, some argue that the reality we perceive is nothing but a controlled hallucination. Others claim that science is about to crack the ancient problem of the self once and for all. In this intimate episode, distinguished philosopher and panpsychist Philip Goth argues that neither of these are true and explains why we need a new theory of consciousness. Philip Goth is a renowned philosopher of consciousness at Durham University, and his unique research focuses on integrating consciousness in our scientific worldview. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, ii.tv, for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers. It's now time to welcome Philip Goth to Philosophy for Our Times. Philip Goth, welcome to How the Light Gets In. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. I'm having a lovely time. What first got you interested in philosophy? I know this is a very broad question, but something always triggers one's interest. What was it for you? Yeah, I think I've just always been obsessed with philosophy as far back as I remember, really. I think my parents tell me that when I was four, I asked, why are we here? But we had just moved house. So I think I was just maybe confused about the location. But yeah, I guess I've always been interested in how everything fits together. You know, I was raised Catholic and I remember asking the priest how Adam and Eve fit together with the Big Bang. You know, what happened to Adam and Eve when the Big Bang happened? You know, so I was hearing these different stories and trying to fit everything together. So I think that's always been my philosophical interest. How do we have a, a worldview that can accommodate all the different things we know to be real? And I guess I'm really driven, always really been driven by that. So a little bit like Wilfred Sellers' definition of philosophy, seeing how everything hangs together in the broader sense. Absolutely, yeah. I think, and, you know, maybe, maybe if you just think the only way we find out about the world is experiments, then maybe there isn't such of a, a role for philosophy in this worldview construction. But I'm inclined to think that actually we, we know things about reality in other ways. For example, through our immediate awareness of our own feelings and experiences. You know, I think consciousness isn't something we discovered in a particle collider. It's not something we know about through observation and experiments, but through our immediate awareness of our feelings and experiences. Also, I think um, another example, mathematical entities, the timeless entities of numbers and sets and functions. You know, we didn't discover these looking through microscopes we discern their existence through mathematical intuition. So I guess I'm inclined to think there are these different kinds of entities we know about in different ways. And so then there's a task for philosophy to bring it all together, to take the things we know about through experimental science, to take also the things we know about in different ways, and to synthesize it all together in a grand unified theory of reality. You mentioned consciousness there as something that philosophy kind of studies. It's not something that we discover empirically in the world. It's something we know from the first person perspective. What is consciousness? How do you define it? 
That's a good question, because it is a little bit of an ambiguous word that's often defined in different ways. Some, often people use the word consciousness to mean something quite cognitively sophisticated, like awareness of one's own existence. But the way it's generally used in philosophy and the way I use it is just to mean subjective experience, what it's like to be you. So right now, you're having an auditory experience of my voice speaking to you. You know, if you pay attention, there's the subtle tactile sensations of the chair beneath your body. This is all part of what it's like to be you right now. And, and that's just what we mean by consciousness. One of your books is entitled Galileo's Error, uh, Foundations for a New Science of Consciousness. Uh, and here we have, even in the title, a kind of collision between science and the kind of revolution that Galileo brought into science and a different kind of science that hasn't maybe been born yet, the science of consciousness. What was Galileo's error in your mind and why has that been a problem for accommodating mm. consciousness into the natural world? Yeah, so, I mean, it's a provocative title, I suppose. I mean, I'm actually a huge fan of Galileo, and I think he understood these issues a lot better than many, many scientists do now. Well, I, a key moment in, in the scientific revolution was Galileo's declaration that mathematics was to be the language of the new science. The new science was to have this purely quantitative vocabulary. Now, although this is much discussed, what's, what's often neglected is the philosophical work Galileo had to do to get to there. We think of Galileo as a great experimental scientist, which of course he was, but he was also a great philosopher. And he, he really designed the philosophy that underlay the scientific revolution. So the problem for Galileo was the world seemed to be filled with these qualities, colors on the surfaces of objects, smells floating through the air, tastes inside food. And it doesn't seem like we can capture these kinds of qualities in the purely quantitative language of mathematics. You know, an equation can't capture that deep red you experience as you watch the setting sun. So this is a problem for Galileo. He wanted science to be totally quantitative, totally mathematical. What are we going to do with these qualities? So Galileo got around this by proposing a radically new philosophical theory of reality. And, and according to that theory, the qualities aren't really out there in the physical world. They're in the consciousness of the observer. So the, the yellow on this sunflower isn't really on the surface of the sunflower, the surface of the petal. It's in the consciousness of the person observing it, which then Galileo took to be outside of science. So Galileo really strips the, the physical world of its qualities, says they're in, they're in consciousness, that's outside of the domain of science. Once we've done that, we can capture everything else in mathematics in this purely quantitative language. So that's the start of um, mathematical physics, and that's gone incredibly well. I think it's gone so well that we're now going for a phase of history where people think, that's the total truth. That's the, that's the complete truth about reality. The irony is it's gone so well precisely because it was designed to be a partial description of reality, one which sets consciousness outside of the domain of science. So that's why we have a problem of consciousness, because Galileo separated out the purely quantitative domain of science 
from the qualitative domain of consciousness. I think if we want to solve the problem of consciousness, we need to find a way of bringing these two domains back together. So as you, as you were saying, Galileo sort of goes on to describe nature in these kind of mathematical terms, and consciousness sort of falls out of nature. It falls out of kind of the description of the natural sciences. And we now are faced with the problem of trying to bring the two back together. And the solutions proposed so far, you know, dualism or physicalism seem to be facing various dead ends. And you have a different proposal. You, you offer this alternative to the problem of placing consciousness within nature, which is panpsychism. Can you tell us what panpsychism is and how does it solve the problem of locating consciousness within nature? So in, in our standard way of thinking about these things, consciousness exists only in the brains of highly evolved organisms and so only exists in really a tiny part of the universe and only in very recent history, cosmically speaking at least. But according to panpsychism, consciousness pervades the universe and, and is a fundamental feature of it. So it doesn't literally mean everything is conscious, despite the, the etymology of the word. Panpsychism literally means everything has mind. In contemporary forms of panpsychism, the basic commitment is that the, the fundamental building blocks of the physical universe, perhaps fundamental particles like electrons and quarks, have unimaginably simple forms of experience, and that the very complex experience of, of the human or animal brain is somehow built up from the very simple experience of the, of the brain's most basic parts. So I guess, in, I mean, you, in a way you can see it as an alternative research program. We've been trying for many decades now to explain consciousness in terms of utterly non-conscious processes in the brain and got precisely nowhere in my view. I mean, we've done lots of cool stuff with the science of consciousness, but in terms of that difficulty of reductively explaining consciousness, I would say we've got nowhere. Here's an alternative program. Rather than explaining consciousness in terms of non-consciousness, explain complex forms of consciousness in terms of simpler forms of consciousness, where those simpler forms of consciousness are then postulated to exist as basic aspects of matter. Earlier on, you defined consciousness as it being something to be like an entity, right? Uh, this is, goes back to kind of Thomas Nagel's definition of consciousness. So uh, it's something to be a human being, it's something to be uh, me, it's something to be a bat, as Nagel said. Does panpsychism claim that it is something to be a table or that there is something that it is like to be an atom or an electron or an iPhone, is that, is that the idea? Yeah, just on, on, the, on the phrase what it's like to be actually, it was used by the great panpsychist Timothy Sprigg before Nagel, I always feel he's a bit neglected. Although probably to be fair, Nagel was the first to explicitly define consciousness using that phrase, although Sprigg did use it earlier. Yeah, so panpsychists needn't think everything is conscious. They think the basic building blocks of reality are conscious, maybe let's say fundamental particles, but they needn't think every random combination of particles is conscious. They needn't think rocks and socks and tables and chairs are conscious. So panpsychists might not think this chair is conscious, they'll just think it's made up of little particles that are themselves conscious in some very rudimentary sense. Um, but this is a matter of some controversy. You know, some philosophers, some panpsychists like Luke Roloffs 
think literally everything is conscious. The chair, the table, my nose. But even then, he wouldn't think that the chair has the kind of consciousness I have. The chair's not sitting there thinking, oh, I wish he'd stop sitting on me, you know. Our consciousness is what you get after millions of years of evolution by natural selection. You get intelligence, you get agency. Uh, the consciousness of the chair would be of a totally meaningless, non-agentive, non-intelligent character. So that's what some panpsychists think. I guess I'm more inclined to think that the conditions under which simple conscious things combine together to make complex conscious things are quite rare and that natural selection, as it were, discovered this and exploited it, so probably consciousness pervades the biological realm, the level of cells and molecules, but outside of the biological realm, perhaps it's, it's more or less confined to the, to the level of basic physics. So something that struck me when you were describing now the way that panpsychists argue that, well, not everything has consciousness, it's the, it's the building blocks that have consciousness, the building blocks of reality, the fundamental particles, perhaps. I was wondering whether you're introducing a different kind of problem of consciousness from the one that we have. So at the moment, our problem is, well, how do you get conscious beings from unconscious stuff, non-conscious stuff, if, if matter is unconscious? What is it about this configuration of matter in the brain and the humans and animals and so on that creates consciousness? Does panpsychism create the opposite problem of how do you end up with non-conscious entities like chairs if the building blocks are fundamentally ah, conscious? That's interesting. So I thought you were going to give the, the, the more classic objection to panpsychism, the, the combination problem. How do we get little conscious things coming together to make big conscious things like brains, that's often called panpsychism's hard problem. But actually, you've given a, a different thought there. Why, why is consciousness not more widespread than, than even panpsychists take it to be? Well, maybe to answer your question, we, we, we probably would need first to address the, the, the much discussed combination problem, this challenge of how little conscious things combine together to make big conscious things. And so broadly speaking, there, there, there are two options here, which I sometimes call weak emergentism and strong emergentism. So the weak emergentist panpsychist is very much a reductionist. It's very, it's very similar to materialism in a way. For the weak emergentist, once you've got conscious particles arranged in the right way, you've got a conscious brain. It's a little bit like, for the weak emergentist, the relationship between a conscious brain and conscious particles is a little bit like the relationship between a party and the people dancing and drinking. You know, once you've got people dancing and drinking, you've got a party. That's all it is for there to be a party, is for there to be people dancing and drinking. For the weak emergentist panpsychist, all it is for there to be a conscious brain is, to ha is for there to be conscious particles arranged in the right way. So again, Luke Roloffs has, in his book, Combining Minds, has tried to make sense of this. I'm more skeptical of that strongly reductionist position. I think you are gonna have similar kind of explanatory gaps that you find in materialism. So the classic explanatory gap in materialism is how you get from the quantitative story of neuroscience, of the physical processes in the brain, to the qualities we find in consciousness, the colors, the sounds, the smells, the tastes. But I think 
the reductionist, weak emergentist panpsychist is going to face similar expansionary gaps. How do you get from facts about conscious particles to facts about a conscious brain? I'm more attracted to what's sometimes called strong emergentist panpsychism, that actually new fundamental entities and forms of consciousness emerge at the neurophysiological level. Now, they don't pop, pop up out of nowhere. Typically, the strong emergentist will think that they're brought into being by the interactions of conscious particles. Nonetheless, these new forms of consciousness are fundamental in their own right. So maybe a good analogy is, you know what, the interactions of my parents produced me, but I'm obviously distinct from my parents. Similarly, for the strong emergentist panpsychist, the human conscious mind is brought into being and sustained in existence by interactions of conscious particles. Nonetheless, the human conscious mind is distinct from and extra to the conscious particles that sustain its existence. Um, so I, I used to think there were empirical problems with the, um, the strong emergentist position. I used to think, um, I used to adopt the thesis that's sometimes called the causal closure of the physical, that everything that, that everything that happens in the brain can be reduced to underlying chemistry and physics. That would seem to rule out the strong emergentist position, which says there are these new properties, new entities at the neurophysiological level. But actually, the more I talk to neuroscientists and read neuroscience, I really don't think we're at a stage where we know enough about the brain to know one way or another. I think strong emergentism is just an open empirical question. It's an open question empirically. And on philosophical grounds, I'm more and more inclined to go in that direction. To circle back to an early topic we discussed, uh, the relationship between philosophy and science, is there a way of testing panpsychism empirically? And if so, how we, would we go about doing that? Or is this a kind of philosophical theory that is distinct from empirical testing and it is more about just making sense of the world given everything we know about it, given the physical theories we know, given the fact that we know consciousness is a phenomenon that we have access to? Is that just a kind of inference for the best explanation, as it were? Or is it something that can be tested? So there's a, there, there is a deep problem at the heart of consciousness science, and that is that consciousness is not publicly observable. You can't look inside somebody's head and see their feelings and experiences. We know about consciousness not from observation and experiment, but from our immediate awareness of our feelings and experiences. If you're in pain, you're just directly aware of your pain. Now, people then say, oh, but science deals with unobservables all the time. Fundamental particles can't be directly observed. But there's an, an important difference here. In all other cases, we postulate unobservables to explain what we can observe. In the unique case of consciousness, the thing we are trying to explain is unobservable. And this really, I think, constrains our capacity to deal with it experimentally. Now, of course, we can deal with it experimentally. There is a robust and well-developed science of consciousness. How does that work? Well, I think although you can't observe someone's consciousness, you can ask them <laughs> what they're feeling and experiencing. And if you do that while you scan their brains, then we can start to establish correlations between certain kinds of brain activity and certain kinds of conscious experience. And that's really important data. But that is not in itself a theory of consciousness. What we ultimately want from a theory of consciousness 
is an explanation of why. Why very certain kinds of brain activity are correlated with certain kinds of experience. And because consciousness is not publicly observable, I don't think that's a question you can answer experimentally. I think at that point, you've got to turn to philosophy and just look at the various options that philosophers have offered um, to explain why brain activity goes along with consciousness. So materialism, panpsychism, dualism, idealism. Um, I mean, I say it's philosophy. I hope one day it will be established science. The subtitle of my book, Galileo's Error, is Foundations for a New Science of Consciousness. You know, philosophy is what you get when the rules of the game are not settled. I hope one day this will be established science, but at the moment it's still in the realm of, um, of philosophy, essentially. You say that in the future maybe there will be a science of consciousness and possibly therefore we will be able to, to test a hypothesis like panpsychism. How do you see the kind of testability of that working out? What, one thing I've in, been thinking a lot about at the moment is my increasing attraction to this, the strong emergentist view that there are new entities and properties at the neurophysiological level. If that turns out to be the case, then I think this does actually point a way forward in the science of consciousness, a way of avoiding some of the deep perennial difficulties we've had in the science of consciousness. So towards the end of the 1990s, the neuroscientist Christoph Koch bet David Chalmers a crate of fine wine that we were, within 25 years we'd have the complete neural correlates of consciousness. It's looking like he's about to lose that bet because, you know, the time's nearly up and we've got multiple different theories with very different claims about where the neural correlates of consciousness is and seemingly no way of establishing consensus. And I think this is because consciousness is not publicly observable. So, so for example, because consciousness is not publicly observable, to do science of consciousness, we have to establish what I call detection procedures, principles which link observable data to unobservable consciousness. For example, we have what, what I call the report principle which is the principle that if somebody is having a conscious experience, they're able to report it. So if you adopt, if you adopt that principle, you can start to do consciousness science because you, you can just ask someone and if they say, I'm not experiencing this, then they're not experiencing it. But the trouble is, all these principles are controversial. So someone like Ned Block, for example, adopts what has become known as the overflow thesis, that there are experiences we are having, but that we can't attend to. So why would you think that? Um, it's pretty well established now that there are significant limits on what we're able to attend to at one time. So I can't attend to all the details of your face and all the sounds outside and the feeling of my clothes on my body. So there are limits to how much we can attend to at once. And then there's two ways you can go with that. You can either say, well, actually, consciousness is very sparse. The only things we really experience are those we can attend to. Alternatively, people like Ned Block say, no, actually, consciousness is incredibly rich. I am actually experiencing the intricate details of your face, the sound outside, the feel of the clothes on my body. It's just I'm limited in what I can attend to. And if you have that kind of break between attention and consciousness, or what's sometimes called access consciousness and phenomenal consciousness, then you're likely to deny the report principle. You're likely to think people could be having experiences even though they can't report on them. So this might sound like an abstract debate, but it leads to very different theories of consciousness, scientific theories of consciousness. So if you think 
consciousness is very closely related to attention, you're more likely to think consciousness is in the front of the brain where the prefrontal cortex is, because that's closely connected to cognitive functions like working memory. But if, if you think there is this break between attention and consciousness, you're likely to think consciousness is at the back of the brain. So how do we move forward with this? Well, if strong emergence turns out to be the case, which I'm inclined to think it is, this could point a way forward because if it turns out, for example, that there is strong, that turns out to be strong emergent dynamics at the back of the brain rather than the front, there are causal dynamics that are not reducible to underlying chemistry and physics, that would strongly support the hypothesis that consciousness is at the back rather than the front of the brain. And this isn't just an abstract possibility. There are, for example, Martin Picard, who runs the mitochondrial psychobiology lab in Columbia University, is exploring experimentally the hypothesis that mitochondria in the brain form social networks. And that rather than reducing mitochondria to underlying chemistry and physics, we should understand them as irreducible social networks. Or the neuroscientist Kevin Mitchell, who's not at all a fan of panpsychism, but he is inclined to think there are strongly emergent dynamics in the brain and is exploring interesting ways of trying to model that. So these seem to me the most exciting way forwards on the science of consciousness. I mean, I don't think you'll ever pin down every, all aspects of a theory of consciousness with experiments because consciousness is not publicly observable. So I think, here's a prediction, I think at some point strong emergentism will be empirically demonstrated and I think at that point, you've got two options. You either go for the David Chalmers naturalistic dualist type position that consciousness is strongly emergent from totally non-physical brain processes, or you go the panpsychist option that complex consciousness is strongly emergent from simpler forms of consciousness. So it could be that experiments can't distinguish those two options, but I think in that case, there's a strong simplicity-based reason to go for the panpsychist option. You know, as scientists and philosophers, we try to find the most simple, unified theory of reality. Panpsychists believe in one kind of fundamental property, dualists believe in two. So here's my bet. In 50 years' time, I shall, I'll bet you a case of wine. That's good. Strong emergentism <laughs> will be proved to be true, and we'll be left with a choice between Chalmers' dualism and my panpsychism. And because panpsychism is just the simpler option, it will just come to seem, over time, it will just come to seem obviously true. Well, we'll have to get you back in 2071 and uh, hold you up to that bet. <laughs> Philip Goff, thank you very thank much. You. Thank you. Lovely chatting. Well, thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, ii.tv, for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.